we're starting a new series today, uh, and it's a series called The Cross. And since around about May, uh, kind of late May, early June, I felt a burden to bring a preaching series that is centered around the cross. I've, I've wanted to do that, and I feel God's prompting in it, and I'm trying to be obedient to that. Now we're a little bit out of season, it might be more appropriate to bring such a series in a lead up to Easter, but I think that it's the right thing to do. And the, the major premise of my series, or certainly where we're starting f- from today, is that I'd like to place the cross central back t- into our faith. And now I'm not suggesting that it's not, I'm not suggesting that we're in, in difficulties or trouble, but I want to make a call to make the cross absolutely central to who we are as followers of Jesus. I'm going to open today with uh, three kind of imaginative exercises, if you like. Um, I'm going to ask you to remember something that many, very many of us in this room will have done, I'm sure, at one stage or another, number one. And number two, I'm going to ask you to imagine a particular day uh, in your imagination. I want you to go there in your thinking. And then number three, I want you to envisage a task. And these are imaginative things. You're going to need to use your creative thinking a little bit here, and I'll guide you in that and just follow with with what I'm saying. Um, But I want you to remember an activity, imagine a day, and envisage a task. And they seem unrelated, but as we get into our message, you will see that they will come together um, and they will make an appeal for the centrality of the cross. So, remembering an activity, I want, uh, I want you to go back in your mind to when you were a kid and uh, one, maybe one of the days that you went down to your local uh, park, uh, perhaps with some friends, or you were maybe at school and you went out with some friends after school, and you went and you found a roundabout together. Uh, and you played on the roundabout for a while. And uh, you played a game uh, where somebody, that crazy friend of yours who has the bit in their brain which is labeled fear, missing, spanned the roundabout really, really hard, and you all tried to jump on. Uh, and what you did when you played this game was you tried really, really hard to drive towards the center of the roundabout. You pushed against that very strong centrifugal force that something spinning will try and throw you off from. Uh, and you laughed and you, you put the effort in and some of you got right to the close to the center and of course you were a bit dizzy because you're spinning right around in the middle. Um, and now that's where the analogy breaks down because I think as we move to the center of our faith, there is more clarity, there is more strength. And so that, the, the picture is a little bit limited, but bear with me. Uh, some of you wanted to get right close to the edge of the roundabout and you enjoyed the rush. In fact, some of you hung on to the bars and you went, oh, like that as you went round and you felt it really strongly in your arms and in your back and in your head. And some of you fell off. Some of you fell off onto wood chippings. Back in my day, it was concrete, uh, can I just say. Um, and some of us kind of lounged around on the grass and then when we felt ready again, we ran at the roundabout And we we had a go at jumping on when it was spinning crazy and our crazy friend was still spinning it and we ran on and we grabbed it and we whizzed round and then we we struggled forward and we got and we we put our hands on that center spindle and we stood there and we clung to it. That's the first feeling I want you to remember. If you ever did that as a kid, you will know exactly what that felt like. And perhaps if you you never did do that and you, you missed that, then you can probably imagine what it might have felt like. So that's the first thing I want you to do, to remember that. That feeling is important because it underpins the why of why I'm bringing this series. Number two, I want you to imagine a day. Imagine a day with me. Uh, this, you're just an ordinary person. 
It's a Friday, it's in April, and you are going about your business in your hometown. And it seems just like an ordinary day. But several things happen during the course of that day and over the next two or three days that are anything but ordinary. And you're going to have to process this as you go through these days if you are this person. And and I want you to imagine that you're this person. The first thing that happens that comes to your attention is that there is an earthquake. There is literally an earthquake. The ground shakes. uh, There's a rumble. uh, Everybody's uh, suddenly struck with fear. Uh, there are rocks cracking, uh, there, are, there are doors in frames rattling. I don't know if you've ever been on YouTube and you've seen some of those clips of people in offices where suddenly an, an earthquake starts and everything starts shaking around and lights start swinging and people are panicking and people are crouching down. Perhaps you've seen it where they're maybe out on the street and they're, they're, they're going down like this because they want to be stable, they don't want to be thrown around. And there's cracks opening up in the road. It is one of the most unsettling and terrifying experiences to be caught in an earthquake. Now, I've never been in an earthquake, and I can only begin to imagine how terrifying that must be, but this is just the first part of your day on this otherwise what should have been an ordinary day in April. The second thing that happens uh, just around about the same time as the earthquake, so these things come very close to each other, is a sudden period of darkness takes place. Everything goes dark. And at first, you think it's a solar eclipse. You're looking into the sky. You're looking for that, you know, you're kind of looking for that, maybe that ring of fire around the sun or around the moon, sorry, of the sun behind it. Or, you know, perhaps you've heard folklore about what that might be, but there's nothing of that. It's just black. It's like it's night. And on top of the earthquake, you are very, very concerned. What on earth does this mean? What sign from heaven is this? You are very, very unsettled. You're starting to find torches. You're looking around to try and see things. You're speaking to people. You're calling to people, uh, to, to other people in the dark streets. You are wondering, what on earth is happening? Is it the end of the world? You are frightened. These things are massive in your experience, and you don't know how to process them. The darkness goes on for a long period of time. It goes on for three hours. Birds go to sleep. It's still. People don't know what to do. That's the second thing that happens. Then, as this this buzz around the city of people telling each other stuff spreads and spreads, there is an an incredibly weird report comes through from those who are in charge of the, the most sacred place in your town. And they say to you that you hear this news that in part, in, in part of that sacred place there's this curtain and the curtain is somehow being torn from top to bottom. Nobody can explain it. It's not the activity of an earthquake. It's not the activity of some, some kids climbing up and pulling it apart. It's just happened out of the blue and the priests who are in this place, in this temple, are very, very concerned because it represents the trashing of something that for centuries has been held incredibly dear. Nobody can explain it. A tearing has gone on. This day unfolds weirder and weirder and weirder. The light comes back after three hours. You're incredibly grateful that the earthquake has subsided and that there's a normal sunset, but people are in complete turmoil. And then over the next couple of days, even weirder things start to happen. You start to hear reports that people who have been buried have reappeared. 
You know a family down the road where there was a knock on the door on the Sunday afternoon and they got the shock of their lives because somebody that they'd laid to rest two months before is alive and well and standing at the door. And they've jumped out of their skin. And, I, and I'm, pre- I'm appreciating there's kind of also, also a, a margin of humor in here because that is just, your reactions could go anyway. You, you could kind of laugh nervously, you could scream in fright, but this person has appeared at the door. And a number of other people in this category have appeared at the doors of their family dwellings. And this has gone on on the Sunday, the, the Monday, the Tuesday, after this particular Friday. It is completely weird. And on top of that, you then hear that there's some spiritual leader who got crucified on a cross outside the, the, the town, and you, you know nothing about him, but there are some wild claims now starting to circulate that his followers are saying, hold on, we've seen him. That he is risen too. Not just these holy leaders, not just these righteous people, but this guy has risen again from the dead. Imagine that for a day. Starting on a Friday, going into the weekend. Just imagine that for a minute. Imagine you lived that for a second. How would you feel? How would you react? Remember an activity. Remember the roundabout. Imagine a Friday in April that you thought was going to be normal, and then it wasn't. Third thing I want you to, to, to envisage is I want you to envisage a task. So the, each of these three pictures are kind of separate, but we'll bring them all together in a while. So jump with me to the next picture that I want to give you. I want for you to imagine that you personally have been tasked with coming up with something called a creed. Now, a creed is a statement of belief about a person or a thing. Um, for those of us who can remember, you know, the old 20-pound notes, you would go to uh, maybe, you know, a restaurant or something like that, and you'd pay with 20, a 20-pound 20 note, and they would put it through a scanner, wouldn't they? they would, there was a blue light that they shone on it, and it, it showed you uh, whether the 20-pound note was real or not. And I, I don't know about you, but sometimes I used to get quite annoyed with that, and I wish I had my own portable one that I could just, you know, check all the money that they gave back to me with and go, yeah, yeah, we're okay. You know, your money's good too. Or is that just me? Yeah. <laughs> But what, what, a, what a creed is, a creed is, they, is the spiritual version of that process. When you check that money is real, when you check that a 20-pound note is not, is not fake, you're, you're checking that it's worth what it really says it's worth, and it's real. A creed says, I believe these things about this person to be true and real. And I want you to imagine now, this is the third imagining exercise I'm going to ask you to do this morning. I want you to imagine that you have to come up with a creed about this spiritual leader uh, that we mentioned that was apparently risen again from the dead on the, Friday, uh, on the Sunday after the Friday. And the way that you're going to do this is you're going to call around 220 leaders together from around the known world, all experts in their field about this person. And uh, you're looking at diaries, and let's imagine we're doing this in 2022. You're looking at diaries, and you're looking at flight schedules, and you're looking at hotels, and you're looking at booking this out in 2025 because there's so many diary conflicts. But you want all 220 of these leaders with you. And by the way, you're going to have to work out what you think about this person first, and then get settled in your mind what the, what the essentials are about this person because you're developing the creed, you're in charge of it, but you've got another 200, uh, 219 people who are going to join you who are going to thrash that out with you. And you're going to debate it and you're going to get quite serious about what are the essentials about this person. And you're going to have to come up with what are the things I'm going to include about this person? What are the non-negotiables about this person that, that I want to say? So imagine striving, um, imagine striving for the roundabout, 
Imagine that day in, on a Friday in April, and imagine that you have a job of coming up with something called a creed. Now, why have I drawn these, two, these, three, sorry, these three pictures um, in order to bring you some sort of understanding, some sort of message? What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get us under the skin of something in a, in a fresh way. I'm trying to approach it from a slightly different angle. Let me take you through what I, what I mean by each of these illustrations so that it becomes clear. I hope you felt something from the illustrations, but now I want to give you a rational reason for bringing them. The roundabout is the illustration of the task that faces us today and in the coming weeks as we kind of get Jesus on the cross back in the center of our faith. So one of the things that can happen to Christians all too often is that we can drift off the center of what's the most important thing. We can sometimes find ourselves getting sidetracked or pulled sideways off onto the edge of the roundabout and finding it quite difficult to get back to the center. But my appeal and my call to us over these next few weeks is put the energy in to get back to the center and cling on to the center with everything you have. Because the cross of Jesus Christ, his suffering and his death for our sake, is the central uh, point around which all of the Christian faith hangs. It is the most important thing about Christianity. No question. And we'll get into some of the debate about that in just a bit, but that's, that's my contention today. That's the thing that I'd like to put forward to us today. And that feeling you feel of being pulled off from the side... You need to counter that in your spirit and come and grab that center place, no matter how hard you're being pulled. And let's all, as church, get back to that central point. Uh, there's this very cryptic verse in Matthew, verse, uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, and it says this, and for many years I've wondered kind of what this means. And I, in preparing for this message, I think I've got a glimpse of what it might mean. It says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violence have been seizing it by force. My roundabout illustration somehow links with that, which is that we need to show a level of energy and fierceness and definiteness in striding towards the center of the Christian message and hanging on to it with everything we've got, like we did as kids when we were playing on the roundabout. Except it really, really matters. It's not a game. It's really essential for us. Now, the Gospels were totally focused on that. All four Gospels do a great job of driving us right back to the center of our faith. Between a quarter and a third of the Gospels are all about the passion of Jesus. In other words, his suffering and his journey to the cross. Each of their stories is designed to get us right back in the center. And they tell those stories with great skill and with great passion and with great energy. And we need to follow those stories and get ourselves right in the center of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Let me take you on a little bit of a journey with Mark's gospel. Mark opens in chapter 1 with this uh, great description of Jesus being baptized. Uh, he's in the River Jordan. He's getting baptized. And the, uh, uh, the heavens are literally torn open. They're torn open by God's, God wanting to intervene. And the Spirit of God comes down on Jesus. Uh, the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove. And this voice comes from heaven saying, This is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. There is a tearing that goes on from God to get at us, to make sure that that connection is re-established, the connection that got broken in, in, the, in the Garden of Eden by Adam and Eve. A tearing is going on, and it starts in Mark chapter 1, and what we find is that Mark uses the same Greek word in Mark chapter 15, and he says, he uses that same word to describe the tearing of the curtain in the temple. 
And that tearing of the curtain represents a, the doing away of an old way of, of trying to connect with God, where there'd be one appointed person who could go once a year into the most holy place. And what Jesus does on the cross is he rips that away and he says, you and I can get straight into the most holy place by having a relationship directly with Jesus himself. And in the very next sentence in Mark 15, um, there's a a centurion who's standing at the foot of the cross. And as the curtain is ripped in two, um, and we, we hear this word torn used again, he says, surely, of Jesus, surely this man was the son of God. The journey of Mark's gospel is a tearing that starts in the heavenlies by God trying to get at, get at us and say things to us through his, through his son at his baptism, and it carries on to a focal point and a culmination of the cross. And the cross is the place where all that tearing gets complete, and our relationship with God is reestablished and reconnected. If we compare and contrast with the Gnostic Gospels that come along 150 years later, two or three generations after all the people who could disprove them and argue that they were complete rubbish have died, then these Gnostic Gospels rise up. And what you find in the Gnostic Gospels is there's there's no discussion of 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 the passion and the crucifixion whatsoever. And of course, all their power and their relevance and their impact is not there because they don't have the cross. It's one of the hallmarks. You can tell a Gnostic gospel because it doesn't talk about the passion of the Christ. It doesn't talk about the resurrection. It doesn't talk about the crucifixion. All of that stuff is conveniently left off to the side. And what the Gnostics have done is they've fallen off the roundabout. They're now on the grass. And they're not even attempting to get back on the roundabout. And they're happy with what they've done. And it's a disgrace. But it's very easy to see the disgrace. And they should be avoided. That's the meaning of the, uh, the, the roundabout. The meaning of the day that you imagine, it won't have taken any of you many, uh, very long to realize that I'm just trying to describe Good Friday. I'm trying to describe that weird day from the point of an ordinary person going about their business in Jerusalem on a day that happened to be the most important day in the whole of history for the whole cosmos ever. And can you imagine what that must have felt like to go through that earthquake and the darkness and then the the weird tearing of the temple and then the news about those people rising again, which is what it says in Matthew's gospel. And then, of course, the news about Jesus rising again. What a peculiar weekend. What a strange day you have had if you've lived through that. Now, nobody nobody here has lived through that because we've all 2,000 odd years later, but you can imagine how weird that must have been to live through that. And I want you to imagine that because that's what it would have been like. Uh, perhaps if you, you know, we, we so often look at this story from the point of view of the disciples or the Jewish authorities or the, or the Roman centurion, but I've just tried to take it from the point of view of an ordinary punter who happens to live in Jerusalem. What would that have been like for them? So that's the second picture. The third picture, this, this idea of the task that I wanted you to envisage, this idea of a creed, is I want to take you back to uh, AD 325 to a council, the Council of Nicaea. Uh, and then another council in Constantinople in AD 381. And these two councils come up with something absolutely and incredibly important for the Christian faith. They come up with something called the Nicene Creed, so named because it started in this, in this town of Nicaea. And what it, what it did was, it was formed, those 220 leaders got together, it was under uh, Emperor Constantine, who was very favorable to Christianity, and he wanted to sort out some heresies in the church. And he pulled all these leaders together, and he said, so what are the essentials about Jesus Christ? What is absolutely non-negotiable? 
What are, the, what are the things that as 300 years of church you would really stake your life on and argue for that must be included in a statement of faith about Jesus? And so these 220 leaders gather together and I believe it took place between May and July AD 381. Imagine a three-month elders meeting to sort out a creed. I'm glad you're laughing, Roy. I mean, some of our elders' meetings are quite long. And what they do is they decide on what are the essentials. They go through it. They talk about it. They thrash it out because it's important. They're countering a heresy that Jesus was a created being, that Jesus didn't have the same essence as God and the Holy Spirit. These are massive heresies, and the church rally together, and they respond by writing down a statement of belief, which is what a creed is. That's the, remember, that's a spiritual version of checking your 20-quid note is the real deal. If you and I were coming up with a creed and we wanted to include the things about Jesus in it, what would you put in it? Think for a moment. What would you include? What do you think is in the non-negotiables about Jesus? That's quite a challenging thought. I'm lobbing you a lot to think about, I know today, but what would you, if this was your job, seriously for a minute, if you imagine you were Constantine or one of these bishops, and, and, and your job was to come up with a, okay, I'm going to come up with a list of the essentials about Jesus. Okay, if it were me, I would be right. Let's have the Lord's Prayer. Lord's Prayer is indispensable. You can't, how, how can you have a relationship with God without knowing how to pray? We need the Lord's Prayer in there. Uh, you need communion. Communion's key. That was something that the Lord showed us himself at the Last Supper. It must be important. What about all of his teaching? What about those incredible parables he taught? What about miracles, the raising of Lazarus, surely, or the feeding of the 5,000? What about the Great Commission? Because everybody needs to hear about Jesus, right? And what about the greatest commandment? Love God, love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, these are big issues you want to throw into the pot and debate about. But what we find in the Council of Nicaea, is none of that at all. Not a drop. And when you first read the, the Nicene Creed, and by the way, it's in your version notes, you can read the whole thing if you want to, but I've picked out the two lines that are, are the things that they include. They just come up, they say 15 words only about Jesus. Only 15 words. 300 years after all the, the, the churches have grown since the time of Jesus and the book of Acts and the spread of the gospel. These guys, seriously senior church leaders, come up with 15 words. Now, you've got to ask yourself, either they've missed the point or they've kind of got something so good and so sharp and so focused, it's really, really worth what, what, what they've said. Let me just share with you what it says. This is the 15 words they've come up with to describe Jesus in their creed. For our sake... He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. That's it. Nothing else. Not even the resurrection makes it into their chart. Not even the resurrection makes it into their list of what's key about Jesus. And it feels sacrilegious, doesn't it? It feels like heresy right there. But it's not because they're being incredibly focused about the most important thing about Jesus. And I feel like we need to get ourselves back to that place of what is the most important thing about Jesus. And we can take our steer or our guideline from 220 leaders who debated it for three months and have come up with a creed that actually all departments and wings and, and denominations in the church to this day still agree with. We're talking Catholics, Protestants, Anglicans, um, Pentecostals, 
Methodist, Baptist, the works, every single denomination you can think of, basically all the mainline Christian denominations agree with the Nicene Creed. They subscribe to what it says because it's absolutely rock solid. It's great. But it's absolutely fascinating to me that they don't get into the life and ministry of Jesus. They go right to the center. They are doing an exercise of getting straight to the center of the spiritual roundabout. And they are standing there and they're holding on to it with all that they've got. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. And that shows us what the early church thought was the most important thing. And my call to us as BCC today is let's get back to the most important thing. That Jesus, for our sake, died on the cross and was buried for us. That is the main thing. And let us keep the main thing the main thing. And as we go through this series on the cross, we are going to explore what the main thing means by being the main thing. And so over these next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at, well, what does the cross achieve if it's the main thing? And I've got to let you know, we're going to take a swing at some very big subjects. We're going to look at substitutionary atonement. We're going to look at justification. We're going to look at righteousness. We're going to look at sin. We're going to look at blood. We're going to look at the scandal of the cross next week. The, The cross is a highly offensive thing, if you think about it. It is absolutely scandalous that people crucified the Son of God on a crossbeam outside a city uh, in AD 33. It's a complete and utter scandal, and we need to refresh our memories that that is the case. My heart and my hope in this series is we get right back to the center of the spiritual roundabout, and we have strength and energy to get there, and we get back connected with what is so important about the Christian faith. Jesus Christ crucified for our sake, and buried. I want to take you through a couple more parts to my message. I want to take you briefly through a worked spiritual or biblical example of how this works out when Paul writes to the Corinthians. Uh, The Corinthians have this, um, uh, they have this messed up view of of the Lord's Supper. They get communion badly wrong in the early days. And what Paul does is he writes to them to say, look at how Jesus, in going to the cross and laying down self, modeled to you what to do. What you need to do, Corinthians, is to stop pumping up self, but lay it down instead. And you need to start preferring one another. And you need to start treating each other a little bit better. What was going on in the Corinthian church uh, was that they were, uh, some people were using uh, communion as a chance to have a meal you know to actually deal with their hunger so they'd sit down and have like you know knife and fork three courses all that kind of stuff maybe some wine I mean they'd kind of really got it wrong and they were calling that communion and then according to their wealth they could do that but there were some other people in their congregation who had no money and were very poor and were turning up to what they thought would be communion but getting nothing to eat at all not even uh, bread and wine to, to to mark you know, uh, communion. And so there was this big mismatch going on and it was to do with some people in the Corinthian church being puffed up and full of themselves and, and, and a bit up themselves and then some people in the Corinthian church being very poor and very hard up and there wasn't an equality. And Paul calls it out and says, you are worshipping a Lord who didn't do that to you. Therefore, do not do it to each other. Let's have a leveling here. Let's treat each other as the Lord would treat us. Let, let's just pick this up in 1 Corinthians eleven 17. I'll read it to you. And this is Paul telling the Corinthian church off about their lousy communion. Okay? Um, in the following directives, he writes, I have no praise for you, 
for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. He's being a little bit sarcastic there. So then, when you come together, it is, it, uh, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat, uh, eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. I mean, that's a pretty stiff rebuke uh, from Paul to the Corinthians. I, I hope that I don't get a rebuke like that from Paul Hudson, my boss. Uh, you know, uh, I want things to, to be reflective of what Scripture says. And then from verse 33, just to finish that off, it says, this is Paul telling them what to do. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. In essence, he's trying to say, celebrate communion and remember communion in a dignified way all together around the elements, the bread and the wine. Do not use communion as an excuse to have a full meal and fill yourselves up. And do not miss people out. Do communion as Jesus showed you how to do communion and treat people uh, as the way that Jesus uh, treated people. Jesus led a self-sacrificial life that led to a self-sacrificial death. You Corinthians, you need to do the same. You BCCers, you need to do the same. Not that we get communion wrong, but let's take on board the principle of what he's saying. How can we respond to that ourselves? How can we copy what Jesus has done in going to the cross? And how can we copy Paul and obey Paul in his commands to the Corinthians? What Paul is basically saying is, otherwise, the whole message of Jesus' mission has been lost. That leveling that Jesus brings, that self-sacrificial preferencing of others, that, that strong desire not to make yourself the biggest deal uh, in the place, that's, that's all kind of getting in the way, and, and we need to get back to the core of what it's all about. Basically, Paul is saying, you Corinthians need to prefer one another much, much better than you do and especially around the communion table. So I'm going to offer a couple of applications for us from our message today. And I can tell that you're thinking, a lot of you are thinking really strongly about what I'm saying. And that's a good thing. I want this message to go in. I want you to think about what I've said. I want you to reflect and to ponder on each of the messages in this series. If for some reason on a Sunday you happen to miss one, I want you to watch it on YouTube later and catch up. This message series is important. It's really important. I want us all to go on a journey of striving to get back to the center of the spiritual roundabout of the most important thing. Do not let things fling you off, from, uh, off to the side. That's so, so important. So how do we copy Jesus in how he suffered for our sake? How do we do that? Well, the most obvious things is that we suffer for others' sake, others' sakes ourselves. In other words, as Jesus suffered for us to create something great for us, we need to lay down our agenda and be willing to suffer or to forego our preferences in order that others might be lifted up. Let me give you some illustrations on what I would call the micro level and then also on the macro level. Because sometimes in church you hear stories from preachers and it's all on the macro level and you think, oh man, I can't ever compete with that. That's way out of my league. So I'm going to start with something on a more micro level that I think or I hope you will identify with. Uh, last weekend we had a great uh, message from a visiting speaker, didn't we? Uh, Esther Scholes. 
Uh, she came, and I don't know if you were with us for Family Festival, but she came and preached a great message on Psalm 66. Very challenging, very deep. What a godly lady. Uh, really, really walked closely with God. She's someone for me who stands right in the center of the spiritual roundabout. My goodness. You know, she's, um, she really shows us the way in that way. Now, that's a family that will come and stay with us from time to time, and they'll stay two or three nights. Uh, they'll occupy part of the house for themselves, and then we just get together for meals, and we talk, and we, we chat a lot, we play games. Sometimes we go and visit them up in Preston. I mean, we just have a really great, long-standing connection with them. Four years ago, they came and stayed with us for a few days, and uh, we decided, uh, all my lads and her lads and her daughter, Eva, all decided to go to the park and have a game of cricket, Okay. And uh, so there's kind of, I don't know, eight, eight of us lads and just her uh, as a little girl of eight, okay? Now, when it was her turn to bat, something instinctive happened with us as, as, as guys. In a very gentlemanly way, we all decided that we would lay down our fantastic ability to smack sixes out of the park and to run 100 runs and to do spin bowling and all that stuff that boys like to do. We laid it down and we realized we had a younger a younger female with us who needed a little bit of help and a bit of space. And so we bowled the ball to her a bit more gently. There was a little bit of miss hitting from her. And then the very first ball that she hit well, she ran several runs. And what we did was we kind of deliberately bungled the fielding, okay? So there was like a lot of the ball going far too far, somebody throwing it straight on the ground, somebody falling over. We, I mean, we hammed it up a bit, to be fair. It was very, very funny. If you fancy watching that video, have a jump on my Facebook profile, not now but later. Um, have a look. Do a search for cricket and video on my Facebook profile. It's just a ridiculous sequence that's very, very funny and that's entertained me ever since uh, we did it. The point of the illustration is that in a micro way, there are so many opportunities for us to lay down agenda, self-agenda, and prefer another person. And that is the essence of what Jesus does in going to the cross. Now, he does it on the macro scale. He does it really big. He does it really up there. He does it in a way that's just off the scale and unimaginably big. And sometimes we look at that and we go, Jesus, wow, that is such an incredible example. How can I ever follow that? But there are people who have, if you think of Stephen, if you think of other people who've laid down their lives for the cause of the gospel, there are people who've gone that far. But I'm going to try and suggest some micro things for you and then some more major things for you that are a bit more practical because the core of my message today, other than alerting us to the centrality of the cross, is let's follow Jesus in what he does in going to the cross, which is laying down self and preferring one another. It says, let me just read that uh, statement from those guys in the Nicene, who came up with the Nicene Creed. For our sake, so he did this for other people, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. He, he laid down agenda to a very, very great degree. You know, Philippians 2, that poem in Philippians 2 talks about how much Jesus laid everything down. He made himself nothing, becoming the very nature of a servant in order that we might be reconnected to Father God. Um, so micro things that you might want to consider would be things like, these are simple, these are things that make the world go round, people. You know these things. Open the door for people. Be kind to people. Smile at people. Give up your seat on the bus. If there's somebody in the queue behind you, uh, you know, or you know, at Lidl, and um, you know, you've got a hundred things that you're trying to get through the till, and somebody comes along with a bunch of flowers, they got one thing. Hey, why don't you just say, "Hey, jump ahead of me," because then you can get on with your day. I'm going to be here ages. It's all that kind of stuff. It's the small stuff. It's the it's the little things, but the little things add up to the big things over time. 
That girl, Eva, had a great game of cricket one day because instinctively, reflexively, us as lads thought, we can't just be treating you like you're going to hit sixes and run 100 runs. We have to accommodate you. That's, that's micro-kindness right there. There are a thousand and one ways that you can make micro-kindness work and lay down self and prefer someone else. And it is what makes the world go round. It makes the world so much better a place. But what about the macro-kindness? And I'm going to ask the worship team if they'll return, and we're going to be getting ready to take communion together. Um, in fact, just before I talk about the bigger picture of kindness, if you would like to have communion with us, and you, you've got, you should have one of these. If you don't, would you just kindly mind raising your hand, and our hosts will come and give you one of these. We've got a hand raised at the front here for Lloyd. That would be really good if we could get a communion pack to him. So we're going to take communion together in just a minute. But what about the macro-kindnesses? What I mean by that is the bigger picture things. Maybe not going to a cross, but certainly making big changes in order that you are following Christ's example and laying down self and preferring others. I can think of somebody I know uh, personally from the world of IT who stepped out of his £100,000 a year job in, in, um, in IT consulting to decide to go and become a primary school teacher in a deprived area of London. Took quarter of the salary that he was on prior to that. And he did that because he felt he was called to go and do something vocational for those children in response to something that Jesus was saying in his life. That's an amazing story. Uh, we can think of somebody like Babs that we've lost so tragically recently whose life was dedicated to other people. She worked on a terminal cancer ward. Imagine having someone like Babs on your terminal cancer ward coming around and comforting you and praying for you and bringing you cake. What is the thing that's the macro thing that you might need to do to make a big change to start making your life a little bit more self-sacrificial and preferencing to others on big-scale things? Not just the micro-kindnesses, but the big stuff. What is that? We're going to gather around communion now. And uh, for those of you who followed, who followed where I was going with the teaching on Corinthians, you'll have spotted that I missed a bit in the middle of that passage out. And it's the bit where Paul talks about what communion means and what it's all about. Let me read it to you. And as we get to the end of it, I want you to notice how aligned it is with the Nicene Creed. And we're going to take communion today in a particular way that we've not taken it before that remembers the Lord's death and, and proclaims it through how we take communion. And I'll talk you through how we do that in just a minute. Paul writes this from 1, uh, from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given it, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And here's the key verse. And this is the verse that I've not read in quite this way ever before up until today's message. It says this, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you what? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You basically say what those guys who came up with the Nicene Creed say. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. That's what you're saying when you take communion. According to Paul, in 1 Corinthians uh, 11, 26, that's what we're doing. 
So we're going to take communion slightly differently today, and what we're going to do is we're going to say the words of the creed, just those core, very essential elements that those 220 church leaders thought were the non-negotiables about Jesus Christ. We're going to say those together, and we're going to take the bread, and then we'll repeat it, and we'll take the juice together. Um, So if you just peel the the top layer of your communion pack off, it's like the clear clear layer, and uh, just get your wafer ready. Say with me. We're going to say the creed together. Say these words. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. Let's take the bread wafer together. Thank you, Jesus. And then if you want to just peel back the, the next layer of the, of the cup, which is the one that's got the foil on it. Oops. Let's say the creed again together. For our sake, he was crucified. Under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried. Let's take the juice together. We have done a very, very biblical thing today. Not that we haven't in the past, but we've aligned our communion directly around Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, the main thing that you do is you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we're talking about the second coming here, way off in the future that still hasn't happened. Together as BCC, we have done that very biblically, very reverently, in accordance with what 220 leaders and bishops decided is the essentials 300 years after the birth of Jesus. I'm going to pray over us and then we're all going to stand and we're going to worship a little bit. And Kevin and the team will lead us in a response. That's a a sung worship. Would you stand with me, in fact? Just stand with me now and I'll pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, it's our heart this morning that we would get right back to the center of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That Jesus, for our sake, was crucified on a cross under Pontius Pilate and died and was buried. And that that model is right at the core of who all of us are, which was that we are prepared to lay down self and and prefer others for their sake, not ours. Would you help us remember that today as we've received communion? Would we go away thinking about that deeply, Lord Jesus, in our hearts and minds? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kevin.